Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 19, as we read verses 20 through 41. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you to show us our idols this morning. And show us the idols of our culture as well. 
Protect us from falling into the temptation of exalting the creation and forgetting you, our creator. Cast these temptations from us by your word and by your spirit. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. One of the themes that has continued to come up over and over and over again in the book of Acts is this theme of idolatry. And so we've had lots of opportunities to talk about idols. Uh, A month or so ago, we looked at how the gospel often comes to a place and has an economic impact and has an economic impact on the idols of that place. Um, Some businesses do better and some businesses do worse when Christianity is dominant. And today's passage reinforces that in a lot of ways, as we'll see. But we also saw that when Paul went to Athens, we talked about the fact that our hearts are constant idol factories. Even if we strike down one idol in our heart, another one seems to pop up in its place. There is truly no limit to the idols that people can make. We even saw that the Ephesians took that to the extreme. They had an idol that was listed to an unknown God. We don't even know who we're making this for. And in all of these cases... The gospel entered into these situations and disrupted the situation. And so in a sense, the gospel really did sort of attack their idols, turn over their tables, and disrupt the plans of the people in the places where the gospel was taken to. And this morning, in a sense, what we're seeing here is more of the same. But I also noticed this, I think we should notice this, that more than any other place before, we see the sort of lengths that people will go to in order to defend their idols and uphold their gods. And so rather than focusing on the nature of idols, uh, rather than simply uh, telling us once again, hey, let's look for our idols, which we've done twice already now, I, I instead want us to focus on the nature of idols and in particular the lengths that people will go to in order to protect and guard their idols. I am convinced that because idolatry is always a clear and present danger for us, that this is still a warning for us as well. Because the more that we know our own hearts, and the more that we see the ways that idols sort of vie for a place in our hearts and in our souls, we find that this is still a problem for us too. This is not just a problem for those out there. And so our three points this morning are idols threatened, idols defended, and idols defeated. First, we see the idols threatened. Um, Just to catch you up and remind you of the situation where this passage finds us, Paul is still in Ephesus. He hasn't left Ephesus yet, but he is getting ready to leave. And the passage begins with him sort of making plans for his missionary journey. He wants to go to Jerusalem, and once he leaves Jerusalem, he wants to go to Rome. He still has not had an opportunity to go to Rome. By this point in history, by the way, he's probably written the book of Romans. So he's written to this church, and in that letter he talks about the fact that, I want to come see you. I want to come visit you. And here he is making his plans now to actually see them face to face. But while he's making these plans, this fellow Demetrius enters the story. He's a new character. And his job is he is a silversmith. And you can probably guess, but silversmiths work with silver, right? And they, they make idols 
And in particular, it seems Demetrius has a specialty. The passage says he made silver shrines of Artemis. And the shrine is actually just a tiny version of the temple. So you had the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. And uh, if you go on the internet and you search, you can see reconstructions of what this temple would have looked like. And so Demetrius sells just a tiny shrunk down version of the temple. And archaeologists still have not found any of these made out of silver, but they have found little models of the Temple of Artemis that are actually made out of marble. So you can imagine with the silver ones, they'd be more valuable. Somebody would, would melt them out, melt them down, turn them into something else. You can't really do anything with the marble ones. And so archaeologists have found these. They, apparently, this is a normal practice, sort of make little tiny model temples. And so we've seen this as a, an actual practice. Now, the Temple of Artemis is an incalculably important place for Demetrius's livelihood. Uh, in fact, while Ephesus had a, has a lot of things going on, a lot of business going on, they have a busy seaport, um, Artemis really is at the center of commerce in this city, and it's really the center of the city's identity. People come from far and wide because they want to go to the temple of Artemis and they want to visit the city of Ephesus because of this. One of the things that happens, at least in, I think this is the case in Kansas, is the, the state is so flat and featureless. We're allowed to say that. You guys aren't allowed to say that. Kansas is so flat and featureless that every single town needs a gimmick. Every single town needs something about it that makes it stand out from the others. Now, I don't know, maybe, maybe Mississippi's the same way. Maybe this is a small town thing rather than a Kansas thing. But, but in Kansas, every town has its gimmick. So one example is liberal Kansas. I don't know if you've ever been through liberal Kansas, but if you go through liberal Kansas, they, they sort of model themselves on Oz. They say, if you want to visit Oz, come to liberal. And they have a tiny version of Dorothy's house, and they have a little yellow brick road that you can walk on. And so the whole town is sort of centered around this gimmick. This is why you come to liberal Kansas. Um, or there's another town in the middle of Kansas called Lyons, Kansas. You probably haven't heard of Lyons, Kansas. But they used to have bootleggers and uh, tunnels underneath the city. And you could actually go down into the tunnels where gangsters and, and, and people like that would sort of hide out. And they would hide all of their alcohol until the cops had, had left. And so you could go visit that. Uh, or they have Coronado's armor from when he came through Kansas as he was searching for the fountain of life. Um, the town I grew up in was Stafford, Kansas, a little town with three or 4,000 people in it. And every year they would line Main Street from one end to the other with Christmas lights. And then they would open up all these Christmas-themed shops. And so the, the gimmick every year was this is the town you come to if you want to see the Christmas Wonderland. And so they would advertise these things, make a big deal out of them. And, and when in a lot of these towns' cases, if you took the gimmick away, you would not only economically hurt them, but you would be stealing, in a sense, their identity, the way they think of themselves. And Artemis is like the gimmick that sits at the center of Ephesus. She is the thing that sits at the center. If you take Artemis to these people, you lose Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is not as vulnerable as a dying small town, but we do see that the silversmiths feel threatened anyway. 
They feel threatened by the gospel ministry. And so Demetrius gives this speech. He says, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Now, to tell you the truth, I don't know if Demetrius believes that gods made with hands are real gods. I don't know what Demetrius really believes or thinks. But on the one hand, he keeps giving lip service to Artemis. He keeps talking about Artemis, talking her up, speaking of her importance. And I can't tell if Artemis is his god or if his wallet is his real god. But I'm actually tempted to say Artemis is a front and his real devotion is to his career. He wants to keep this gravy train running and Paul is a threat to that. And he's willing to sacrifice his very soul just so that he can keep his career going. Before we judge Demetrius too much, we should be alert to that in our lives. Is there anything on the pedestal of our lives that we will do anything to keep it up? That we'll sacrifice anything, whether it's our family or whether it's even our soul, so that we can have it. So Demetrius gets these other silversmiths together and they notice how Demetrius drums up the support here. He begins by reminding them of their wealth. You men have become wealthy off of this. He reminds them where it came from and he reminds them you have a lot to lose in this situation. See, their whole business hinges on the devotion of the people to Artemis. And so before he does anything else, he reminds them of what they have to lose, and he does his very best to set the stakes here. The next thing that he does is he points out to them that the threat is real. Paul has devastated the idol business in these other places, apparently. And it reminds us, as we saw before, the gospel has a tangible impact, so tangible that here is Demetrius in a different location, and he's heard about what happened in all those other places where the gospel went. And before we see what the Silversmith Guild actually does, I think we should appreciate this for a moment. Demetrius, what does he know? Demetrius knows the truth. He, he knows the gist of Paul's message because listen to what he says. He says, Paul is saying that gods made with hands are not gods. This man cannot plead ignorance, right? But even more, the truth is threatening to his idols and he knows the truth. He knows what Paul has been saying. And so when he chooses to disregard Paul and when he chooses to ignore the message of the gospel here, understand this is done in full knowledge. He knows the message that's being proclaimed and that's what he's opposing. This is a moment for us to feel the pressure. All right. Are there enclaves in your life, places in your life where the idols are are hiding out? And you don't see them because they're so much a part of you. There are routines that we can get into. There are patterns in our lives, patterns of sin maybe that we're committed to. And maybe we've even made peace with. And we don't notice them because they've become so much a part of us. 
The greatest threat to those idols is God. The greatest threat to those idols is the gospel. Because I, I, I know this, the idols are not hypothetical. They are there somewhere. We all have our idols. If, if you're thinking to yourself, well, I, I don't think I do. I don't think I've got any idols whatsoever. I would just challenge you and say, the question is not if they're there. The question is whether we will reject them or not, so that God reigns supreme in our lives. But this is what happens. The, idol, the, the gospel comes forth, and what happens? The idols are threatened. That's the first stage. The threat happens. But next, we see that the idols are defended. See what happens. The silversmiths go from words to action, and, and I want you to see what they do. I want you to see how they spring into action. In verse 27, Demetrius says, There is a danger that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. I I just want you to imagine this for a moment. He just said Artemis is great. G-R-E-A-T. She is great. But... There is a danger that this guy who's walking around and talking might take her greatness, might steal her magnificence. You have to wonder how great a deity is who can lose her greatness and lose her magnificence. And you have to wonder, too, does Demetrius even really believe what he's saying? Is she really great? Is she really great? Paul is, all this man is doing is he's talking, right? He is such a threat to Artemis. He's just saying words. He's walking around. He's telling people about Jesus. And Demetrius is afraid Artemis is going to descend from the temple and be deposed and be destroyed. How great is she really? Nevertheless, no one questions it, it seems. The speech is effective. And the the text tells us the city is filled with confusion. And so they rush together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. I don't think we've met these men before in the narrative. But Luke tells us they were Paul's companions. And Paul tries to get in. He tries to make it in, and the others stop him. They say, you're going to get killed. I think that's the implication here. There are parts of the world that are very honor-based when it comes to their understandings of religion. Um, one of the starkest examples is of Islam. There is a, a young woman named Asia Bibi in Pakistan. I've, I don't know if you've followed the news related to this young woman or not, but for nearly a decade, she was held in a Pakistani prison because she was working in the fields. She was, she was drinking from a bowl. There was some dispute over whether she could drink from the same bowl as her Muslim co-workers and She apparently or supposedly said something about the prophet Muhammad. She said, Jesus died for my sins. What did Muhammad ever do for you? Now, in a a culture that's 90% Muslim, that is a very dangerous thing to say. And so for this, she was arrested. Now, part of the reason she was arrested was for her protection, because there were crowds that literally were trying to kill her. And so she was placed under police protection, but she was also arrested. And what happened was, over a number of years, she was held in prison. 
And there were questions as to what was going to happen to her. And whenever government leaders would speak up on her behalf, they would end up being assassinated. And so the question is, what, what sort of lies behind that? What is the worldview behind that? And, and part of the answer is not just Islam, because there are other cultures that are honor-based, such as Hinduism. Hinduism also has sort of an honor-based society. Um, and so because Islam is an honor-based religion, though, if your God is dishonored in Islam, it is your duty to avenge his honor. And so Asia Bibi spent 10 years in prison. Now, she's recently been found innocent. She's recently uh, been permitted to leave the country. The problem is it's not safe for her to do so. So right now she's still in hiding in Pakistan somewhere. There are other honor-based religions as well, but, but I, I want you to see the difference here. As Christians, if, if someone told you there's a man two streets over and he said a blasphemy and he spoke badly of God or he did something offensive against Jesus, we would not mobilize a mob and we would not start a riot. And the reason is because it has, it's not because we live in the pluralistic West, because regardless of where we lived, if God told us to do that, we would, we would do that. But God tells us not to do that in Scripture. See, why don't we uphold the honor of God's name the way that Demetrius and the silversmiths do? The answer is because God is more than capable of defending his own name. So when you look at the Old Testament, one of the ongoing themes is that God lifts up his own name and makes his own name great. He's the one that does it. Uh, Isaiah 42.8, God speaks and he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So look at the active person who gives or takes glory. It's God himself. And then if you go to chapter 48 of Isaiah, he says something very similar. He says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be proclaimed? My glory I will not give to another. Look who defends God's honor in 2 Kings 19.34. God says he'll protect Jerusalem to protect his own honor. Listen to this. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. So, so there is honor to be defended, but it's God who works to defend his own name. Maybe you say, well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, Hebrews 10, 29, the author talks about what will happen to those who dishonor God by profaning the blood of the covenant. And the answer he gives is not, Christians, this is your moment to take up arms, defend the honor of God. No, instead, the text says, God will punish this person himself. He says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Um, or Romans twelve eighteen. you probably know this verse, but it says, if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so over and over again, we see this massive difference between the false gods 
and Jesus Christ, right? Artemis must be defended at all costs. And who's going to do it? It has to be us. The people of the city, they're the ones that have to defend Artemis' honor. Her name has to be honored. And if it won't be, then violence needs to happen and mobs need to be stirred up. Why? Because Artemis isn't real. The idols aren't real. The worshipers have to do all their work. Everything falls on them. Everything depends on them. This is kind of a funny story. It's funny to me, at least. A few years ago, I was uh, preaching in Winona, Mississippi, at the Presbyterian Church in Winona. And uh, the elders there were telling me once about a service years before where they were having sort of a revival service and their organ had gone out. The organ wasn't working. And so they had this room full of people who were here. They were ready. The place was wall to wall. And everyone's wondering, when is the music going to start? And the problem was the organ wasn't working. And the way they explained it to me, and I'm not an organ expert, but apparently they needed to get a great deal of air passing through this organ to make it run. And so two deacons got behind the wall, behind the organ, and they had to sit there and crouch down and manually press on this fan the entire time so that the music would play. And so they're pumping away fast and furiously, trying to get the air passing through so the people can have songs that they can sing, just sort of breathlessly going. And they were so grateful when the music was over. And, uh, And if they stopped for a moment... The music would stop. Demetrius sees himself like that, right? If he stops, Artemis stops because the the idols aren't real and, and some human activity is required to keep this thing going. But Isaiah 40, 19 says, an idol, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. What kind of God do you have to make where you need to have a sturdy, solid base so it doesn't fall over? You're propping him up. How pathetic is that? The idea that you could have a God that keeps falling over and needing you to prop it up. What sort of God is that? But the true God, he's so different from this because he defends his own name. He preserves his own honor. He protects his own glory. He stands up for his own name. And our job as Christians is to set him forth and share the truth, but to persuade people to worship him, of course. But our job is also to stand aside when it comes to the honor of God, because God will stand up for his own name. In fact, in fact, the picture in scripture is of a God who looks out for us, not the reverse. We're not propping him up. He's propping us up. And before we go to the third point, I want to say that it is easy to look at these people in Ephesus and point the finger and, and laugh, or, or we can look at the Muslims in Pakistan and, and shake our heads in judgment. But just know that when our idols truly get threatened and when our own heart idols get attacked, we know how to come to their defense too. We do this. 
we do this. Our idols are just different. We defend our idols every time we make excuses. I need this thing. This is important to me. Uh, we defend our idols every time that we deny that we have idols. <laughs> right? Um, this, this house isn't my idol. I need something to live in. It can't be an idol if I need it, right? We do the same thing with our vehicles. Got to have a vehicle. This thing can't be an idol for me, right? We defend our idols every time that we try to minimize the things that own our hearts. So, so let's not imagine that, this, that those people out there are the ones with idols to defend because we do the same thing. We do. We have a lot in common with them. So let's look at that here in our third point this morning. Because the idols, they may be threatened, they may be defended, but finally they are defeated, at least here in this narrative. Look back at Demetrius' speech. Um, yes, he gives the speech to get the silversmiths to act, but when he gives the speech, he also reminds them of the success of the gospel already. Because he says, listen, he says, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Demetrius, this fellow who is no believer, he is no follower of Jesus, admits that the gospel that Paul preaches has had success all over Asia, all over this region. And notice this, Ephesus may have idols, but they weren't the only ones with idols. Every city Paul went to had idol worshipers, and they had followers of false religion in these places. And Demetrius says that in those places, God has defeated the false idols. He's thrown them down. And and notice, even the first verse of our reading this morning, right before this attempted riot happens, verse 20 says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This passage is bookended by success. And it says the word of the Lord prevailed. Luke doesn't say the disciples increased and prevailed. See, when Luke... When Luke narrates this for us, he tells us his eyes are on God and what God is doing. Demetrius is right about who's preaching it. He's wrong about who's really doing it. It's God. Demetrius, uh, Demetrius credits the spread of the gospel with, and the success of the gospel and the disrupting of idols to Paul because he doesn't know any better, right? He thinks Christianity must spread the same way that his idol worship spreads, right? Each person needs to do their part to make this happen. But he says this Paul fellow has done this and Luke says, no, no, no. You don't know how this works. This is God, Who is building his church? This is God who is toppling idols and prevailing. Your eyes are in the wrong place because you think the gospel survives and thrives the same way that your idols survive and thrive. You think you're doing all of this. You think that you're keeping this whole enterprise going. And that's actually true. But the church isn't like that. The gospel isn't like that. Now, the gospel is the power of God. It's not our power. None of us has the power to topple or to prop up the church. None of us is so important that the church of God will not go on without us. None of us is indispensable. 
I hope that doesn't distress you. To, to me, that knowledge is liberating. The idea that the church doesn't need me, it doesn't need you, it doesn't need any of us necessarily to keep happening. Because the church is not a human activity, ultimately. All we are is under rowers in God's great work. And God can always find someone else to serve in another's place, right? Isn't that comforting to to know that we aren't holding all of this up? I think sometimes church leaders, pastors can think this, but so can church members, right? We can be tempted to picture ourselves as if we are atlas and we're holding the whole world on our shoulders. And we're the ones who are making this happen. But I think God has a word for us here. And the, and the word is, you are not doing this. You have not done this. You will not do this. I bear my church. I care for my people. I am the one that spreads the gospel through my people. You are just my tools to accomplish all that I'm going to do. Demetrius is so concerned that he'll lose his livelihood. And he says he's afraid that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. I was speaking with Paul Adams, who's a ruling elder in our presbytery the other day, and he said he had actually been to Ephesus before. And I asked him, what's it like? He said, it's just rubble, just rubble everywhere. He says, they don't have a, they don't have a harbor anymore because uh, it's silted out into the sea. So now there's no way to bring ships up. He says, the temple of Artemis is no longer there. All they have is a few stones. Because as people left Ephesus and needed to build their own homes, they just took the stones off of the temple of Artemis and walked away with them and made their own houses out of them. There's nothing left. All that's left is a pile of rocks. Demetrius' hope was in that building. And now it's gone. The people of Ephesus were, were distressed to think they might lose this building. And now they have. And now their hope is gone. The thing that they feared has come true. Unlike Demetrius, our hope isn't in a building. And our hope isn't in us. God will fight his own battles. God will conquer all his his enemies. In fact, he already has at the cross. The greatest enemy Christ has before him is defeated. See, our God is a warrior who defends his own name. So let's remember our place. Let's walk behind him and not before him. Let's pray. You, O God, are a warrior who has fought every battle that needs to be fought. And you never call us to take vengeance for you. For you avenge yourself. Give us the faith to know this and believe it. Protect us from believing, becoming so faithless that we begin to believe that we are supposed to live like Demetrius. And carry the weight and the pressure of keeping you and your church going. No, Lord, you are our God. And we are your people. And you will always defend your infinite and perfect glory. 
It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Our hymn of response this morning is hymn number 40, God is our refuge and our strength. We'll sing the first, third, and fourth verse. Would you please stand to sing our hymn of response?